So last Sunday, I began a, a short series, uh, what I consider the five essential elements of a well-balanced Christian life, worship, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, and outreach or service, anything by which we die to self and serve other people. I said they're useful for churches in strategic planning. Uh, they're useful for individuals in planning and also evaluating how are we doing um, you may not agree with these five things, and I said last week, that's okay. You come up with your own list and get about it, right? Um, it, all too often, you know, when somebody's converted, they just start going to church. And they never ask the question, why? What am I here for? What am I supposed to be doing? And I think it's important that we be intentional about those things. Last Sunday, we talked about worship and the marvelous thing that God doesn't just tolerate our worship, but seeks our worship and delights in our worship um, and, and how we are inescapably religious because we're made in the image of God. We all have uh, something or someone we worship because we're made in the image of God. We are um, um, having objects of ultimate concern. That's how some people describe God or idols. Um, so... We come today to prayer, and I want to read uh, this section, Luke 11, uh, 1 through 13, and look at it, um, and, um, because I think uh, you can't grow without uh, praying, and a church can't function as it ought without praying. And uh, it's surprising some of the things that are said in this text, and so I hope we'll um, be able to have the Spirit help us. Let's pray before we begin. Lord our God... Uh, we come to you in expectation that you are the living God and that your word is powerful. It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, it is a hammer to conform us to the image of Christ. Uh, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be poured out on uh, each of us as we listen to your word and on me as I proclaim it. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be our guide, our helper, because we need the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to illuminate these things for our understanding. And, and Lord, give us the expectation that we will be different. Life will be different. We will be transformed uh, by hearing your word read and proclaimed. Use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11 at verse 1, let me remind you, we believe the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he 
not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This is God's Word. It won't fade at all. It will abide forever and forever. Well, I've knocked my watch off. And I'll have to fetch it later. Sally, don't let me forget it. Well, it's, it's, right, uh, it's right down here. You see it? Grief. Thank you. I'll tell you, it's dangerous to have a pastor in the pulpit without a watch, you know? I mean, yeah, so my excuse will be I can't see it while it's on my arm, right? Okay. So I want to begin in a, in a very uh, maybe surprising place. Uh, with prayerlessness, prayerlessness. Um, what's prayerlessness like? Um, well, suppose there's a covenant relationship, a marriage is a covenant relationship. And suppose there's a covenant relationship, but there's no communication between the two partners in the covenant relationship. You'd say, well, that's... Not like it ought to be. It's very strange. How can that relationship grow and develop? Probably can't. Uh, Prayerlessness is like receiving a good gift and not following through with thank you. Right? It's kind of rude at best. Like, say, having a best friend, but you don't communicate with your best friend. Or neglecting to say, I love you, to your loving parent. Prayerlessness is so abnormal and I think atypical as to call into question the professed relationship that's the covenant. So, right, if, if you said, well, there's this married couple that don't ever talk to one another, you'd say, well, that's, that's a, that's, that marriage is in danger. Maybe there's not much commitment there at all. And if there's a God and He has people that are in covenant relationship with Him and they never pray, that's perhaps calling into question the relationship at all, right? It doesn't disprove or nullify the relationship, but if you never pray, and I want to ask you, do you ever pray? Do you ever pray? Not do you think about people that need help, but do you pray? If you don't ever pray, I want to ask you to seriously consider why that is. And if there's not some serious spiritual deficiency that's at the root of that. Christian prayer is about relationship with our Creator, Redeemer, God. Uh, I want you to think of it today, and I'll tell you about more about how this passage approaches it in a minute. Not as, a, as an duty or an obligation, but as a delight, 
and a way to cultivate relationship. Um, the verse, uh, chapter 11 begins with the obvious um, fact that the disciples want to pray. Um, and it's pretty obvious that they need some teaching on the topic, right? Jesus is praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, so they want to pray. Uh, they need and ask for teaching on the topic. And, and I, as your interim pastor, want you to be a people of prayer. Uh, God wants, I think, you to be a people of prayer. The scriptures from stem to stern teach you that. Um, and there are two basic strategies I could take. There may be others, but there are at least two uh, kind of at different ends of the spectrum that I could take in trying to get you to pray. And one of them is that I could shame you or beat you, try to use a whip to get you to pray. And, and there are many deficiencies in that approach. Or I could try to lead you there and entice you to go there to become men and women in a congregation of prayer. Now, I think it's pretty um, obvious this passage takes the second approach. It is enticing people to pray. There's not a whip in this passage. There's enticement, as we will see, uh, it teaching us, trying to get us to see that we should delight in praying to our Heavenly Father. Now, all too often, we, the strategy people in churches will use with themselves and others is the first strategy. Beat myself. I don't pray enough. I need to be a person of prayer more. Well, okay, yeah. But don't let guilt for past prayerlessness deter you. Remember the grace of God in the gospel. That His forgiveness is past and present and future and, past and is full and free. Believe that God will hear you because of Jesus. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray, remembering that Jesus, our great high priest, has made a way of access for us into the throne room of the Father. Why here in this passage do the disciples want to know how to pray? Well, the immediate cause seems to be two good examples the first one is the example of Jesus. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, they kind of said, well, we ought to do that too. That's a good thing to do. We ought to be like our master. And they knew that he prayed frequently. Uh, Judas knew where he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the reason he led the soldiers there. But the other example is that of John the Baptist teaching his disciples to pray. And so they have enough relationship and enough boldness to ask Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, on a deeper level, perhaps they felt their need to pray. Perhaps they knew they were made in the image of God and, and, and they felt a need for relationship with God. And perhaps they know they're dependent beings and therefore needy. But good examples led them to prayer. Uh, my college roommate uh, was uh, uh, a Christian before I was a Christian. And uh, my, our senior year, we had a, an apartment over a garage, and, and um, I was just, actually it was the fall of my senior year when he and I were roommates, I became a Christian, and, and I would come out of the bedroom storming off to class late, and he'd be sitting there reading his Bible and praying. Mm. And, and God used that to, to encourage me to develop a life of prayer. Um, 
When I was, before I was 10, I know it was before I was 10 because I was living in a different town than the one where I graduated from high school. We moved at 10. I was staying at a sleepover with a friend. And uh, the friend's mother came at bedtime. She pulled out a Bible. She read it and prayed. We didn't do that in my house. Really woke me up. Wow. Wow. Good examples. The power of good example. That's why they're saying this. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, you say, are we supposed to parade our practices of prayer around? The answer is obviously no. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 5. But it's okay to let certain practices be known. It depends on how we let them be known. And the disciples certainly knew that Jesus prayed regularly, and that was a good influence on them to pray. So one other question or two, and, and then I want to get into the text, which we'll have to consider all too briefly. He could preach a whole sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, even a short form of it. And, and, and the question is, is the Lord's Prayer something we ought to pray the way we do here, or is it a form uh, telling us topics we ought to pray for? And the answer is yes, it's both. It's both. It, 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 adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication are all in that uh, prayer. And, and is it for personal use or corporate use? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Again, uh, I think it's intended uh, for both. Um, so let's look at the Lord's Prayer first and, and what to pray for, the content of this prayer in verses 2 and 3 and 4. And I've already said this is kind of a short form of the prayer. I don't want to go into all the details about why it's not the longer form you have in Matthew, but it's, it's, uh, it's what uh, Jesus uh, spoke on this occasion, okay? And the first thing I want, to begin, I want to begin with is a couple of lessons that are just obvious at the start. And that is we, we not only be, need to be encouraged to pray, we need to be taught what to pray for. We need to be taught what to pray for. Um, that, I think, is very important. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, we need to be taught how to pray. You say, well, I know how to pray. Well, do you really? Have you studied the prayers in the Bible? Do you know the focus of those prayers, the content of those prayers, the spirit of those prayers? Uh, have, you, have you looked at that? And you think, well, certainly I know how to pray. Everybody knows how to pray. Prayers, I've just been taught that prayer is talking to God, and so I talk to God. Well, yeah, okay, in one sense, but you need to be taught what you should talk to God about. And certainly they are asking that question. And secondly, I want to point out there's nothing here about technique. A lot of people uh, spend a lot of time talking about technique in prayer life. I think that's a mistake, to be honest with you. I love to pray with people that are brand new Christians. You know why? Because they don't use the typical jargon and lingo. I just love to pray with people that are so uh, novices at the Christian life. They, they pray with a freshness to me. Um, uh, there's nothing there about technique or phraseology or whatever. Okay, so let's look at the prayer briefly, very briefly, because I want to go on down through verse 13, okay? How do you address God in prayer as Father? That's very clear. Not only is God approachable in prayer, but He's approachable as Father. I have preached uh, uh, on Father's Day, don't forget your Heavenly Father. But it's, it's good news that God is our Father. Um, and if we're born again and if we trust in Jesus, God is our, our Father. And there's intimacy in that and there's encouragement in, in that. He, now, it's, it's not a peer relationship we have with God, no. But He's our Father. And as a Father, He wants us to come. And we'll see more about that in a little bit. 
Uh, What do we pray for? Well, there's things about God. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What is it to hallow? Well, it's to praise. It is to make or set apart as holy. It is to reverence and respect. And to uh, respect the name of God, as many of you know, is to respect the person of God. By the way, if you want a succinct uh, summary and exposition of the Lord's Prayer, questions 98 and following of the Westminster Shorter Catechism have that. Uh, I guess I'll just give you one instance of that in this uh, uh, Hallowed Be Your Name. Um, and the uh, point that's made, um, uh, the exposition that's given, what do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. And he goes on then, that's question 101, and then question 102 in the second petition, 103 the third petition. And it's very helpful, and I commend it to you. Now, let me ask you this. If you pray, and you could take a survey and summarize what you've prayed for, let me ask you, are you praying that God's name be hallowed, or your name be hallowed. I think all too often we pray not, we don't pray the words, Lord, hallowed be my name. But if you take the things we pray for, we're asking God to glorify us rather than we're praying for God to be glorified. Too many of our prayers are focused, I think, on hallowing our own names. Give me this, God, so that I will be somebody and seen in the community as somebody. Help me this way, God, so I can get glory for myself. We don't add the get glory for myself, but it's often prayers that can be summarized as, well, that person's praying that they be glorified and that their name be hallowed. Just think about it. I think a lot of our prayers, a lot of the time we neglect Hallowed be the name of God. Your kingdom come. That's the second one. That's God's project. That his kingdom would come. Where? Where? In me, in us, in others, in this community, in town, in state, in nation, in world. God's kingdom, not my kingdom. There is self-renunciation in that. There's the assumption that God is a great king. There's mission in that prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What's my mission in life? What should be my mission in life? The coming of the kingdom of God. The establishment and the extension of the kingdom of God throughout all the earth. Is that what I'm praying for? Is that what you're praying for? Is that the summary of our prayers? It's the kingdom that Jesus initiated, prays for, and will come again to consummate. Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom. I pray way too much for Alan's kingdom. Not in those words. But if you summarize it, that's what I'm praying for all too often. There are things not only about God, but things about ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. The Anglican Leon Morris said, 
we are to live in a state of complete and continual dependence upon God. Give us this day our daily bread. And I think daily bread here is a summary of daily needs. Help us with our daily needs. Why does that prayer come right after thy kingdom come? I think this is often missed in the expositions in the Reformed tradition. Well, we're praying, I hope, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, give us what we need for kingdom building that we just prayed for. Really? Well, look at the context. In the context of praying for daily bread, we just prayed your kingdom come. We're asking for resources to establish and extend the kingdom of God. Bread, in the Old Testament, of course, the manna was for sustenance in the pilgrimage to the promised land. I think we don't realize the context in which bread is stated. Give us this day our daily bread is stated. Another thing we pray for ourselves, forgive our sins, for we ourselves have forgiven everyone indebted to us. Christians are forgiven and accepted, but still sin. And, and as we seek to build the kingdom of God, we will sin. And there's an ongoing need because of the things I mentioned earlier to confess and ask for forgiveness. That's why we do it each Sunday in the liturgy. To confess again the things we've done that are wrong. Now, the question comes up, we can't dig deeply. It sounds like we're earning our forgiveness by by forgiving others. And I think that's not the point at all and not what is being taught at all. Um, We're saying, look, I've been touched so that I have forgiven others. I've been touched by God's grace uh, and so I have forgiven others. And, and Lord, because I've been touched by your grace, forgive me. I think the forgiveness of others is a sign that we have been touched by the grace of God. Lead us not to temptation. Well, that would be obviously bad for us. It admits our weakness and frailty. Without God's good guidance, we would lead ourselves into temptation because of our fallen nature. And so we need to pray and struggle against sin. Lead us not into temptation. Okay. That's way too quick. You could do a sermon on each one of those, okay? My second point is an aside. Because I want to throw this into this sermon right here so that the devil won't lead you in a way that I hope you will not go. That too often we come away from a sermon like this thinking, I need to pray more. I need to pray more. Well, that's... That's true. I mean, nobody's ever prayed enough, I don't think. Maybe a few people in the history of the church, but most of us have not. But there is a real danger in the talking that way that we will treat prayer as an end in itself. Uh, Rather than being a means to an end. And what do I mean by that? If I said to you, if you said to me, I need to pray more, and I would say, why? You might look at me like I was a nut, right? And you'd look at me like I was a nut because your answer would be, well, that's what good Christians do. You pray. But why? Why should you pray more? 
And the answers have already been given for better relationship with God, to know Him better as Father, to praise Him more regularly, to seek His help in establishing and extending His kingdom, for forgiveness applied to ourselves, for protection, for temptation. That's why prayer is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end of being the people God wants us to be, to be the church God wants us to be, to be on mission as God wants us to be. Uh, Prayer is not an end... In itself, I, next week we'll talk, God willing, if Jesus doesn't come back and I live and you're here, we'll talk about uh, the wor- uh, 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 worship, prayer, Bible study. And, and I think a lot of Christians take Bible studies and in in itself. Why should you study the Bible? And, you, and, and if you ask that question, people look at you like you're a nut. Well, it's what Christians do. You study the Bible. I need to gain knowledge. But the Bible is a means to an end as well. It's not just I need to know the Bible. I mean, you go to, if you've got a, well, we're not, if, you were in, if we were in Birmingham, I would say, go to a Southern Baptist friend and say, uh, should you go to Sunday school? And they would say yes. And, 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 and they would say, why should you go to Sunday school? And, and they would say, to learn the Bible. And if you said, uh, why should you learn the Bible? Most people would look at you like, what do you mean, why should I learn the Bible? Why should I study the Bible? It's, it's treated as, a, as, as, a, as an end in itself. But it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And prayer can be treated that way as well. And we should not do that is what I'm pretty obviously saying. Verses 5 to 13 talk about the manner, I think, of our praying. Um, And again, we're humbled, I hope, to be taught that we need to pray in a certain way, that we don't just know how we ought to pray, that it doesn't come naturally in many ways. And he begins with this story of the friend at midnight, which I think is to teach us to pray confidently and persistently and shamelessly. So the story's pretty simple. There's a guy and um, uh, he, he's got a, he has a friend come to him at midnight. And uh, hospitality was an obligation on individuals and villages or cities. Um, if you could not show hospitality to others, it looked bad on you. It looked bad on your community. And so uh, this, the, the, the first guy um, uh, has a friend come at midnight, um, and uh, he doesn't have anything to eat. All the previous day's bread is gone. There are not any 24-hour grocery stores, you know. And uh, so he goes to a friend to get bread to feed the friend that has come to his house at night. And a friend next door says, I can't do it. I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. Everybody's asleep. And I'll wake the whole house up if I get up. Um, um, because this man who's asking his neighbor doesn't want to be shamed by not having bread. And so there's a request, a denial, a, a, a renewed request, and a positive response. Um, and it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Um, um, look at the text. I've, I've been very um, careful with it. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because he is of his impudence, his persistence, he will give him whatever he needs. And, and the point is, look, if, 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 if your friend will do that as you repeatedly pray, shamelessly pray, confidently pray, won't God? I mean, that's the point. Won't God? Won't God help his people? Won't God come alongside? And, and so after that, he, he turns, you can't, 
you can miss this in the text, but in verse 9, it begins to be imperatives. And, and the verb tenses state that it's continuous uh, action. It says, ask, seek, knock. Ask repeatedly, seek repeatedly, knock repeatedly, and it will be given to you. You will find, it will be open to you. Whoever you are, ask, seek, knock. It applies to you and me and all believers everywhere. And, and does it mean everything I want? So I'm praying for a Bentley, you know. No, I, actually, I see Bentleys and Maseratis every now and then. We didn't have those in Birmingham, but you guys have got them around here, I'll tell you. And, uh, and, and uh, is, is that what I should pray for? Look at the end of verse 7. Whatever he needs. Oh, not whatever he wants? You mean this isn't a... This isn't a Unlimited debit card to get everything I want? No, that's not what prayer is. That's where I've tried to set the missional context of this daily bread. The daily bread prayer comes right after your kingdom come. I mean, God's not going to give you things that will destroy you. Destroy you. I mean, have you seen those studies, haven't you, of people that win the lottery and what their lives are like ten years later? I mean, it's almost like you should pray you never win the lottery, right? I mean, it wrecks and ruins lives. It does. So God wouldn't do that. That's not what it is. And then it turns to from the repeated uh, request. That's, I think, the point of the story. Shameless, repeated, constant, continual prayer of the friend at midnight. And then in verse 11, uh, it turns, I think, to expectation, um, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish uh, give him a, a, a serpent or a, a scorpion if he asks for an egg? I mean, the father is willing to bless his son. This is another argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if an evil father's like this, then a heavenly father is even more so like this. So you're out to eat and your kid orders fish, and you pull the waiter aside and say, bring him a snake instead, a live snake. Put a live snake on the plate. I mean, you know, there might be some jerk around that would do that, but you wouldn't do that, I hope, right? No, you wouldn't do that. That's what he's talking about. Oh, Really? You're evil. You wouldn't do that. God's perfectly holy. He wouldn't do that. Your children trust you not to do that. He asks an egg. Put a scorpion on the plate. No. No. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's always ready to give good gifts, bread, forgiveness, protection, the Holy Spirit to His children who ask Him to help in hallowing His name and extending the kingdom of God. Why does He say the Holy Spirit here? Right? That's a little surprising ending to me. How much more will your Heavenly Father give what His children need to those who ask Him? But He says give the Holy Spirit. Well, I think here the Holy Spirit is a symbol of all blessings. You can say it this way. All blessings are mediated by the Holy Spirit. I think that's true. 
It could be talking about the Emmanuel concept. You know, the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Emmanuel concept is this concept that throughout the scriptures, there is this theme of God with his people. Uh, in Adam and Eve in the garden, God with his people. Um, uh, God uh, goes to, uh, in, in Exodus 3, to Abraham and said, I will be with you when you lead the people out. When they leave, in, uh, leave the promised land, God says, I will be with you. I will tabernacle among you. Uh, God dwelling with his people. Uh, Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit comes. That's God dwelling with his people. You get to the end of the Bible, the, the book of Revelation. At the very end, it's God and his people living together. So the Holy Spirit is the, is the dawning of the age to come and is the promissory note and is the actuality of God dwelling with his people. And so if God dwells with his people, there's blessing, period. That's the point of the Emmanuel concept. When God and his people are together, there's blessing. Uh, there's provision and protection and things like that. And, and so we need a resident helper in advancing the kingdom. A continuous help against temptation and lingering guilt. So let me close this way. How's your prayer life? How's mine? How's the prayer life of CVP? Do we pray? When do we pray? How do we pray? Why do we pray? What do we pray for? Do we pray for the kingdom to come? Do we pray for God's will to be done? Do we pray for the resources to establish and extend the kingdom of God? Or do we treat God like a divine bellhop? This is a John Piper image. I love it. He said, all too often we treat prayer as... uh, as a, you know, um, um, in the days, Judy, you didn't grow up like this, I don't think, in England. But, you know, if you lived in a castle in England, you had a bell pull. And you pulled it, and the, the guy came up from downstairs, and what do you want? Oh, and you run get it, okay? And some people treat prayer like that. And Piper says, but the truth of the matter is that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie in which we call in assets from God as we storm the gates of hell seeking to establish and extend the kingdom. And way too often, brothers and sisters, we treat prayer like a divine bell pull. And God, show up. I need something today. My life's tough. From the cross, Jesus looks down and says, is it really tough? Let me show you what's tough. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. The call-in divine assets to help us in our battle against sin and against the kingdom of the world. Most of us would say, my prayer life is not where it ought to be. So how can we grow in prayer? First of all, I want to say what I said earlier. Be careful. It's all too easy to take the whip and apply it to your back and say... Oh, I'm a wretch. I need to pray more. I, I'm, I'm a worthless Christian. There's nothing I can do. But that's not what this passage is focused on. That's not how it's themed. They said, God, we see Jesus praying. They knew John the Baptist had taught his disciples to pray. Hey, Jesus, we need to know how to pray. Would you teach us? Here it is. And then he encouraged them. By the story of the friend at midnight. By the stories about a father giving scorpions or snakes 
No, he wouldn't ever do that. And your heavenly father won't do that either. So it takes the gospel, not the whip. It takes knowing that I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm a child of Jesus. It takes the gospel to know I should focus primarily on God and His hallowing His name and His kingdom coming and not me and my kingdom. And so what we need to do, I think, is to renew our faith or our belief that God is our Father, that we are His beloved children, that prayer makes a difference, that we can't make it on our own. One writer I've read says, our prayerlessness is a confession of the fact that we think we can make it on our own. I think that's unavoidably true. If we're prayerless, don't we, doesn't that mean we think we can make it on our own? You say, well, I wouldn't say it that way. I know you wouldn't, <laughs> but doesn't it say that? Or I can do his work on my own. Really? With his help, we can grow in grace and the knowledge of truth. With his help, we can establish and extend, extend his kingdom. Indeed, we will. Is that your faith? Is that your faith that he can use you that way to establish and extend his kingdom, to glorify his name, to forgive your sins, to keep you from temptation? God wants you to have that faith and to pray that way, and the gospel proves it. Let's pray. Lord, our God, uh, thank you for teaching us about prayer, how to pray, and encouraging us to pray with the story of the friend at midnight and uh, how good a father you are, much better than earthly fathers. So, Father, give us these gifts we need to establish and extend the kingdom, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives and the lives of the community and world in which we live. Uh, Lord, help us to use this uh, as an, a way to evaluate where we are and what we're doing and, and, and to reprioritize if we need to. Lord, help us to avoid Satan's uh, temptation to go out of here with a whip on our back instead of the gospel in our heart. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.